Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. Well, Esau McCauley, welcome to Seminary Dropout. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, what, Sorry, for those who I, don't I, know... I, 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 I don't want to derail your podcast. Actually, I do. No, I graduated please. from seminary. Okay. Am I still eligible to be on the Seminary Dropout? Can I stay? So, here's the thing. You can absolutely stay. In fact, okay, these good. days... The majority of my guests are like seminary professors these days. Okay. So, so I, I, I didn't you're well I at make home. Sure. Yeah. So this is like, I try to tell people I am actually a literal seminary dropout, but Got it. this is, it's the title of the show is really more of a metaphor of deep things, but being accessible for people. So, okay. So uh, my, my remit is to be deeply accessible over the next 45 minutes. Gotcha. <laughs> that's easy right yeah it's easy no problem sorry you wanted to introduce me <laughs> but actually i wanted you to introduce you oh you want to introduce myself know. okay please name, <laughs> i'm gonna put the burden name, on you today my name's Esau mccauley i am an associate professor of new testament at wheaton college um i'm a contributing opinion writer for the new york times and i've written a couple of books the most recent one uh is one called how far to the promised land one black family story of hope and survival in the American South. Uh, someone married me, my wife, and I'm really happy about that. And we have four wonderful kids. All five of them are probably better people than me. I'm the sixth most popular Macaulay in my house. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so if it's cool, I didn't get to interview you when after Reading While Black came out. So... If I can ask a few questions about that, first of all, if if for people who haven't read, what's the what's the elevator pitch for reading while black? Well, actually, the two books are related to one another, and so the interesting thing, and I and I I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But I wrote reading while black um, right after my father passes away, and the book How Far to the Promised Land. Um, it's kind of set into motion by my, by the death of my father. And the two, um, if you open them up, the two dedications to Reading While Black and Apple to the Promised Land are in conversation with one another. So they're actually companion books in a way that a lot of people might not understand. It's kind of, how Far to the Promised Land is how I became the person, if that makes any sense. They wrote Reading While Black. So um, Reading While Black, though, the, the, is a book that I wrote really beginning the idea for reading my black began probably in the summer of 2016 the ideas that of what became reading my black or the kind of the emotional impetus is people kind of it, it might be hard for people to remember what 20 the summer of 2016 was like but there was a lot of um black lives matter protest and a, a lot of resistance to anti-black racism especially in some event, incidents around um policing and I remember distinctly, and I was living in Scotland at the time, finishing my PhD. And I remember distinctly people saying, this civil rights movement is not like your parents' civil rights movement, and we're going to do it differently. 
And one of the things that some people, not all, some people were saying in that regard was um, that the civil rights movement was distinctively Christian and this is going to be a more secular movement. And related to that, I saw a lot of African-American Christians in particular asking the question about the relationship between their faith, their scriptures and social action. And they had been told by segments of the church that if you cared about the Bible, then you wouldn't be involved in all of these social issues. And if you really want to be involved in these social issues, then you needed to kind of toss the scriptures to the side. And I grew up in Alabama, a child of the civil rights movement, a, a context in which faith and social action were mutually informing. And so I, I set out to write a book to explain how the black church taught me to read the Bible in such a way that I saw God as a friend, not an enemy in the side of, on, on, on the side of justice. And the whole idea is that you could read with the grain of the text and see God as both liberator who cares about the things that are happening in society and a guy who cared about the salvation of our souls that what the culture had torn apart. I thought that we could still keep together. It seemed to me like reading while black was kind of championing a way that black folks have read their Bibles for a long time, but maybe didn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. The, 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 Is that the fair? opening chapter was called the South got something to say. And it was um, this idea that, we're what was what was often lost in the discourse around Christianity and social action was the normative witness of the black church and our history and our habits and ways of being were for a variety of reasons pushed to the side. And I didn't see myself. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this. I went to seminary. Here's seminary dropout connection. I went to seminary because I wanted to learn all of these tools to, to, to use to go back to the community that shaped me. And one of the things that was really interesting when I got to seminary, and I was happy for the Greek and the Hebrew and the church history and all of that stuff, but I, I recognized very quickly that the seminary that I attended, the seminaries in general, did actually didn't understand the black church. And I kept finding myself saying, a lot of the problems that you all have here could be solved if you had listened to us. And so what began as me equipping myself to return to my community was recognizing the deep ways in which my community had already shaped and formed me for the issues that I was going to face as a minister. And so what I was trying to do was to bear witness to that because that same kind of sense of I don't see myself here was something I was that, that I think was common to a lot of African-American Christians at the time. What I didn't expect to happen when I wrote Reading While Black was the idea that there was a lot of Christians outside of the black community who were asking the same thing. That there was a lot of people who were trying to figure out the relationship between faith, social action, and ethnic identity. Such that Reading While Black, as I envisioned it, was a pastoral intervention into what I saw as a potential crisis in the African-American community because of like the response to the things that were happening in society in 2016 through to, through to um, 20, 2017 ended up becoming, by the time the book comes out in 2020, that had ballooned into something like a national existential crisis in Christianity, broadly speaking, about the relationship between Christianity, social action, and the authority of scripture. And that, that gave it a wider audience than I suspected but I'm grateful for it because I believe that 
black Christianity is Christianity. It's not like it's a black Christianity that's closed off from the world because what the black church says about Christianity is true. It's applicable across culture in the same way that people who, uh, who are doing British evangelicalism can say things that are distinctively British, but are also applicable to the rest of the world. I was saying that we can do things that are distinctively African-American rising from our culture. They can also do things for the rest of the world. Yeah. So you said that you, some things you saw in seminary, the questions that they were asking, you'd felt like, Hey, if you've been listening to the black church, you would kind of have some answers to this. Was it, specifically that like how do we our social justice like how do we uh yeah how do we enact social justice in that relationship to how we read scripture and and our faith yeah i no i think i i, I guess i guess that if you can as an over, overly simplistic way of answering that question is there been two really big this is not completely true there's three but we'll leave one of them out but there've been two really big fights between the black church and what is what what I call the white church. People don't like it when I say these terms, but these are descriptors of historical realities. When I refer to the black church, I mean the black people who are kicked out of white churches because of racism and slavery, and that what was left were white churches. And so these are just the two entities that existed. And so during the abolitionist slavery debate, the African American church combined respect for the authority of scripture and abolitionism. And they said that the Bible rightly understood from Genesis to Revelation is on the side of freedom. And the overwhelming consensus of white Bible-believing churches where if you believe the Bible is the word of God, then you must support slavery. And you must support the historical um, superiority of the white race to the black race. This is, this is the argument. You can go from Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Everybody was saying this with obviously there's a minority position in white churches, but the majority across the denominations was this consensus. And the black church is like, no, 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 you're reading the Bible wrongly. You should look at it this way. And we were called heretics and liberals and people who didn't take the scripture seriously. If you fast forward, you know, 200 years or whatever, every single person in the United States adopts the hermeneutical method that the African-American church developed to become abolitionist. Like no one, like no one, well, I shouldn't say that at this point, everybody believes something. <laughs> there's a, there's a minority, but like everybody kind of agrees that all of, all of the people, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, all of the heroes were wrong and that the African-American Christians were right. And because of how we read the Bible. And so then you fast forward to the 1950s and the 1960s and you have the segregation integration debate. And the overwhelming majority of Christians uh, in the majority of white churches all said we should stay segregated. Like this is the, this is the consensus. And the majority of black Christians go like, no, 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 because what the Bible says about the image of God and because if you do A, B and C, we should all be together. We should all be one family. Now, you fast forward 60 years, everybody adopts the African-American Christian reading. And so there is a sense in which the hermeneutical instincts in majority white churches led them to say things that are now indefensible. And, and, and what I want to say is, well, how did we actually do that? How were we reading the Bible differently? So we saw a path. Now, the other thing is in majority white churches, the other solution was like the two paths that opened up, generally speaking, was, 
Well, one path uh, is like you have to support these things. The other one is, well, you can't keep the scriptures and believe in abolitionism. So let's just toss the scriptures to the side. So how did you maintain a belief in personal holiness being still important? God as liberated being important in the scripture still being um, a friend and not an enemy in the pursuit of both holiness and justice. And that was the, that was the basic thing that I was and, and, and that way of reading scripture, I think, still exists today, which is why, in general, the African-American church combines social action with orthodox theology in a way that is controversial in evangelicalism that kind of rips itself apart trying to figure out how do we do these things and I want to say there's a group of people who for the last 200 years or 300 years have been a laboratory where we figured out how these things could work together yeah and I remember it's been a little while since I read reading while black but I remember you kind of outlining how for a long time you know if you wanted to be if you were a black theologian um you know, there were your your union seminaries, like your really liberal seminaries where you could get hired. Or if you wanted to really like toe the line, there were some conservative seminaries that would they needed a, a token, you know, uh, black professor or whatever. But you had to stay within the lines. And so it kind of it gave the perception that like these are the only two camps of of uh, black thought, which was not. Which is not really the case. Yeah, which is what I was trying, what I was trying to outline in um, reading my black was there's a world between those two extremes, and for a variety of reasons, there are people who have a vested interest in only um, presenting those two streams as was available to African American believers. And I was just trying to expand the palette of options. You know, there, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of paths through to faithfulness and I always just try to open up another path. Yeah. And you did so beautifully. I loved it. Oh, thank you. I'm surprised. It's funny. It's like, um, I got an email the other day that said, you know, we want to invite you to come and speak about your new book, reading my black. And I was like, wow, that book was three years old. And so one of the things that I forgot about though, this is true. Like I have all kinds of books that are like three or four years old on my, on my, on my live, on my library shelf that's, um, that you all can't see that I'm going to get to that book one day and it's new to them. Right. But like, it's funny that I wrote the book in 2016 and 20 or 2017 and 2018. And for some people, they're still encountering it. And it's really weird. It's almost like by the time people find out about something, you're always working on something else. The funny thing about it is even now, um, you about to ask me about, um, the current book that's about to come out, but I'm actually in my brain reading and working on my next book. So it's always weird, this kind of time loop that exists when it relates to um, the writing process. I wish that we, it, I wish it could be like there was a Netflix version of books <laughs> where we could yeah. all binge it in one day and then talk about it. <laughs> but I know that I, it, it'll be two or three years before I find out how many people actually like How Far to the Promised Land because the people are still asking me about it, then hopefully it, it's stuck with people. It takes a while. It takes a while for sure. Yep. Yep. Well, um, so how far to the promised land? I feel like kind of the genesis of this book was when you were speaking at a, at a panel and the last question was share with us the most racist thing you've ever experienced. Was that the question exactly? I may have got yeah, a little so, bit of wording wrong, but it was like basically so, that, right? So, um, well, 
Yes, in the book, the um, the 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 genesis of the kind of the, the what becomes the philosophy, the least of the book is I'm sitting at it's it's funny you talk about the relationship between um, how far to the promised land and reading on black. So forgive me if I tell this story, but. On the back of How Far to the Promised Land, I'm sorry, of, of Reading My Black, there's like two endorsements that I've always thought were funny. Like Lecrae endorses it and N.T. Wright. I think I'm the only person who has those two endorsements. But I actually met Lecrae at the event that describes, like, that, that opens from right. um, How yeah, Far to the Promised Land. He was also a panelist, right? He was a pa- so that's how I met yeah. him, and that's how we ended up endorsing the book. So anyways, I'm on this panel with Lecrae. And we talk about race and justice in America. And they do the little thing where they give you questions from the audience. So this wasn't the, the host, because this is Googleable, so I don't want to be mean to the host. But the host is reading a question from the audience. And the audience, the question the audience was, tell us about the, the, the most racist thing that ever happened to you. And the idea, I think, behind the question was, it was an innocent one. If I tell people how bad things were, then maybe... Uh, they will have some empathy and they'll kind of make racism, they'll fight racism more. And what they were actually asking me to do was to kind of exchange black trauma for justice. And I felt like there is a way in which you can tell that story of growing up in poverty and overcoming racism where you're the hero where because I overcame all of these things, I deserve certain things. I deserve justice. And what I realized is that we were kind of taught to tell, I call it the Horatio Alger story dipped in chocolate, where like the black kid grows up in the hood, he overcomes it. And the only job of the listener, the only job of the listener is to kind of boo the racism and cheer the hero. And because I'm sitting there, you know the hero survives. There's no real drama. It's like when you're watching your favorite television show, if it's been renewed, it doesn't matter what they're going through. You know the Tom Cruise was not going to die in Mission Impossible. Everybody else could die, but you know Tom was going to live. So, like, the drama is fake. And so what I wanted to do was to say, no, no, no. You don't just get to hear one small slice of the African-American experience. Because the other thing that happens is that people then litigate the experience. They kind of go... Was that racism? Do I believe it? And so what I felt like the only authentic story that I knew how to tell wasn't simply a story of all the things that I had overcome, but a wider story about the neighborhood out of which I rose and a, a, a questioning of why America demands that kind of exceptionalism from African-Americans. In other words, I wanted to question the entire system of heroicism as the means of enacting social change. Yeah, it it feels like <clears throat> it's kind it's kind of like a, a voyeurism almost, like a white people voyeurism of like, I wanna like, I want you to tell me the story so I can be like I can imagine it, be a fly on the wall, and and then feel a certain way and like and it's a feather i can put in my cap of like i've listened i've done the work you know yeah and i and i i wanted the question i want the question all of that i wanted it's funny like i wanted a a memoir that didn't follow the standard beats of a memoir it's it's kind of that like you know that like the oscar bait movie about like somebody in the inner city like they over they overcome the odds, you know, and it's they you know they make it to the professional football team or or what have you. 
and there's a whole other story. And and the the crazy part about it is, and this is the hard part that it's it's hard to articulate. You benefit from that story as the as the ethnic minority. So in other words, I'm I know the kind of story that they want to hear. I know it because we've heard it so many times. We can even refer to the story, and we all know what we're talking about. And and what the, the the reason that I had a problem with that is because there's a way in which like I would fit the stereotype. I grew up poor. I'm not poor anymore. Those kinds of things like that. But what I wanted to say is when you tell that story, when you zoom in on one character as he moves through these things, the frame of reference is too small. Because what, what, what you actually understand when you come from those places is that it's not just the most, ta- the most talented people aren't the only people who are, who are valuable. Or I'll put it this way. There are tons of talented people who don't survive. And so it's not just the most talented people who make it. Some of it is providence. And so for a decision here, a, division, a decision there, I could have had a totally different experience in life. And that we only value, and this is kind of, it's weird because we're Christians. Christians only value, or we have a tendency to only value stories that end in material success. Even though we say material success doesn't define the value of human life. And so what I said is I didn't want to treat everybody in my community either as an object lesson that taught me something on the way or as a failed life. And what I believe, if, if like all life is actually sacred and matters, that every single person's struggle and, and, and attempt to find meaning reveals something important about the human experience. And so since I had the microphone, I said, I want you all to see the people in the story who you don't normally see because you're focused on the protagonist. And so lots of the chapters deal with people who I encounter or I tell other people's stories. And, and, I, and I try to show the beauty in things that people don't want to see the beauty in. I guess the way, that, the way I talk about it is this. You're stuck if you are an um, African-American who grew up in poverty trying to explain it to people. Because you have one option. You could talk about how horrible it was. But my life, the entirety of my life wasn't all drama and sorrow. But there was joy. But if you talk about the joy, then people don't take the sorrow seriously. And it's that tension. It's almost like when, when people go to the mission field and they take these pictures with these kids and they kind of go, look, these kids, they don't have anything. Well, look how happy they are. But yes, they're happy because all of life isn't misery. But there's still some, some structural problems that led to them being in the places that they are. And like real justice involves changing those things. And so I wanted to both show the joy that was involved in the black community, like the, the talent, the giftedness, the the the, the art, artistry, but also show the trauma that's there too. And it's somewhere in the midst of both of those things is the truth about uh, the black experience, at least in the South, as I, as, as I encountered it. It's very similar to when an egregious and, and most of the time violent racist act gets caught on camera. And there's always the like, do, are we supposed to share this? Because it's it's traumatizing for people. And yet, when no one knows about it, when it's not a big deal, nothing happens, you know? Uh, like, it's that catch-22, you know? Like, how do you get justice if no one knows about this terrible thing that happened? And think about all the trauma we're inflicting on people by broadcasting this terrible thing that happened, you yeah. know? And, and, but 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 even beyond that, what I would say is, and this is one of the things that, uh, that it's funny that you mentioned that that's kind of motivating some of the writing of the book. 
what happens when someone dies violently is there is kind of a, a an assessment of their life. And we say he or she had been arrested so many times. They had done these things. And we assume that because they did, they may or may not, even whether or not any of that's true, but they, they were accused of things in the past. We kind of say, oh, that means that this person's life was, was valueless. So whatever happened to them, they deserve it. But I said, as a Christian, like the entire point of the Bible are, is, is surprising turnarounds. People whose lives seem to be going one way and they dramatically change. People like Zacchaeus. Like what happens is Zacchaeus gets killed three days before he meets Jesus and they got to go look at Zacchaeus. He was nothing but a collaborator, a tax collector who stole money from the poor and then he got killed by the Roman police. He got what he deserved. But three days later, Zacchaeus meets Jesus and the next thing you know, Zacchaeus is saying, whatever I've taken, I'm going to return. The thief on the cross, right? He doesn't deserve anything. His whole life is nothing but crime, but he has a moment. And so for me, I want to say that there is no life that is that is valueless. And if someone dies before they have the opportunity to have that change, that is not less of a tragedy. It's more of a tragedy because what we, what we should be thinking is the more unfinished the life is, the more it deserves protection. And like the idea that you protect the most broken is a profoundly Christian idea. And so what I was trying to do in parts of reading uh, of how parts of the promised land was to show these lives that you do not value. God was at work there. And I know God was at work there because I was in I was in those communities living with those people. And I saw it. I saw their struggles. And we we tend to summarize people's lives by cliff notes. And I wanted to challenge that tendency. Yeah. Well, and even beyond the like, could someone have had redemption? Like, I mean, how many times you hear evangelicals talking about God loves you right where you are, no matter what you've done. Like, I thought our value came from the Imago Dei, which yeah. is like, cannot be earned, right? It's not earned. Like, it's not by, earned. By definition. So it's really strange to go back to like, well, if they behaved better, like if you'd done better, maybe we would, your life would have had some value. And, and what I wanted to say is, and I know that this may seem esoteric, but there is a beauty sometimes in the struggle. And what I mean by that is there are people who are trying to find that this is why it's called how far to the promised land. One of the there's people who are trying to find their way to God and trying to find their way out of the situation. And it feels like they just can't get there for a variety of reasons. My father is one of the main is, is a character in the book who's trying to do that. And he never quite gets there. But that struggle, that that, that desire to get there, that's compromised by a thousand mistakes there's something there that teaches us something about what it means to be human. In other words, you are you are a part of the American narrative, even if you don't wind up with the picket fence. You are part of the human narrative, even if you don't wind up in the in the glories of what we call the promised land. You your life matters. And and as we examine the obstacles that we put in the way of people's flourishing. And if you read the book, you can begin to see this. Like when a, So we, we have to ask ourselves, are we a country that is comfortable with the obstacles that we put in the way of black flourishing? 
So what what I one of the other things that happens when you think about these binaries is we ask the question, is it personal responsibility or structural issues? And both of those things are are treated as completely cure-alls, right? That every single injustice can be can be reduced to structural issues. Or every single injustice can be reduced down to personal responsibility. And what I saw in my life and in the life of the neighborhood around me was both personal responsibility, the things that we did to harm one another, that the enemies weren't always outside of my community, the enemies were inside of my community. But it's also the case that some of that despair and nihilism came because of generation after generation of, of real oppression. And so telling that story, both of those things are front and center. That yes, we are an oppressed people, but yes, we have moral agency. And that that out of that mix comes your struggle for meaning. And what is it? How do we reduce the obstacles that stand in the way of human flourishing was something I was trying to get at through the lens of story. If reading while black is a, a um, an argument through um, scriptural exegesis and cultural commentary, how far to the promised land is an argument through story. Well, you mentioned one of the main characters, the characters in your story or in your book was, is your father and you know, he was someone who, gosh, there was a narrative that he was born into that made him the underdog from the beginning and kind of like set this tone for his life that he didn't ask for that. I mean, literally just born into, you know, and that manifested itself when you were a kid and when you were growing up and he, he was dealing with his problems. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting is that I tell the story in the order that I learn it. And so you initially meet him without any context. And then midway through the story, you um, you, you get some context. So I will let the reader go into that. But I think that it's, it's really funny because people and maybe maybe nobody's going to buy the book for this reason. Uh because it's not it's not just one thing. And so if people want just like a race book, then they're going to be disappointed. Because one way of looking at this book is an extended reflection on forgiveness and familial trauma. And one of the things that um, one of the ways that I describe it when I'm when I'm looking at the book from that angle, it's almost like a like a, 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 a what do you call it? A chimera, depending on the angle that you come at it is like the book opens with prism. The book opens with the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because um, I, I, I so many things I can say about it, but the, the framing device of the book is that my father dies um, and they asked me to do the eulogy. And so it opens up with me learning about his life because of having to do the eulogy from him and I didn't know him as much growing up. But the passage that I used uh, for the eulogy, and the eulogy is actually the final chapter of the book. Uh, I can't believe they let me write a book that, that climaxes with a funeral sermon. That's like, <laughs> I can't believe they let me do it, but I'm glad that Penguin and Mouse had that much confidence in me. Uh, they did make me edit it down, so that's not the whole thing. I can give you the whole thing if the people email me. Actually, I won't give it to you. Don't email me. Okay, anyways, what I was going to say is it, it opens up with uh, the story of the prodigal, not the prodigal, the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story in the Bible where, you know, the, the Pharisee goes, you know, I'm glad I'm not like this horrible guy. And the other guy goes, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. 
And the story ends with, you know, the tax collector goes home justified. And we love that story as Christians because it means no matter what you've done, God will forgive you if you acknowledge your own sinfulness. But what I like to say to people is before the fair, before the tax collector walked through the door, he left a wake of trauma throughout the entirety of his life. Can you imagine being the son of the tax collector and how nobody wants to hang out with you because your dad's a collaborator? Think about all of the people who, who, who economically suffered because he was stealing from them throughout the entirety of his life. So, yes, he's forgiven by God, but there's a legacy of hurt that comes from his actions created by the way he chose to live his life before that moment. And this book, in, in some sense, is the story of the child of the tax collector. That what kind of trauma does these the, the sinful decisions that someone makes have not just on their children, but the community, the neighborhood around them? And so how do you both embrace the fact that this person finds forgiveness and you're happy about it? But that that event doesn't erase that 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 trauma. And so a significant portion of the book is me trying to make sense of the long-term implications of my father's departure from my life. And I was simply spiraling down the economic ladder. I, I mean, I guess that's part of why forgiveness is so scandalous because it, hap it can happen in the wake of a bunch of consequences and trauma, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, it's like the doctrine of grace explained over a long narrative. And, and if I can be, if I can be nerdy and maybe nobody's going to buy it because it's, it's a book about race. It's a book about forgiveness, but it's also in a sense, a spiritual biography. What I mean by that is I think, I think about um, things like the seven story mountain with Thomas Merton, or I think about um, C.S. Lewis, the prize by joy. And there are these books that are kind of these classic books of Christian literature, maybe Augustine's um, uh, Confessions. And these stories, although they're socially located, I've seen as quintessentially Christian that anybody can find themselves in them. And I said, you know what I want to do? I want to write a black surprise by joy. <laughs> um, in the sense that you can't tell, I think it's hard to tell. I can't say you can't. It's hard to tell the story of an African-American person's journey with God without dealing with the issue of race and where God is in the context of black suffering. And so the book is this long reflection on how do I make sense of what God is doing, given what America does to black people? How do I make sense of what God is doing, given the distinctive disappointments of family? Like when people who are close to you, who, who are supposed to care for you, disappoint you, that causes a spiritual crisis. And so how do you, over time, work through those things and, and, and answer this question as best as you can. Given the things that I experienced, where was God? And so it's not that like the whole book is like an apology for being a Christian because through most of my life, that stuff was below the surface. In my, on my brain, in my mind, I'm dealing with whatever is in front of me. But in actuality, what's actually happening beneath the surface is I'm wrestling with questions of God. And so, yes, like it's a book about forgiveness. It's a book about um, finding God in the midst of all of this stuff. And it's a book about race in America. It's almost like, yeah, if, if, if Ta-Nehisi Coates and C.S. Lewis um, had a baby, <laughs> it would be how <laughs> part of the promised land. 
And not and I'm not saying I'm as good a writer as Tanahasi or C. S. Lewis. So don't come don't come at me. These are analogies, America. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a fantastic writer, Esau. You know, I had this weird experience reading the book, which is I, I guess it's because we are so used to um hearing stories about black families situated during the civil rights movement. Uh, but where I had to keep reminding myself, you're like two years older than me, not 20 years older than me. Like, yeah, <laughs> like it felt like it was situated. Then now part of that is part of that is how little things have changed. You're talking about your interactions with police, you know, and it feels like something that should should be more, you know, should be some a story that a 60 year old tells, not a 40 year old tells. You know what I mean? I don't know why we believe that racism ended a long time ago. There's this, there's this amazing part of, this, of the book. I'm not amazing writing, but narrative. So I'm calling my grandfather. And my grandfather, I, I guess he's in his like teen years when Brown Breaks the Board of Education occurs. And I say to him, like, how did you feel the day that Brown Breaks the Board of, Board of Education happened? Because wait, there's this image in our head that like all the black America was waiting with bated breath. There's this picture of this um, girl who's sitting on the steps where the mom's reading the newspaper. And I thought, granddad, how did you feel? And he said, we didn't have a TV. We didn't have a radio. I didn't even know. And nothing changed. And so then you go, you, be, you actually realize that Brown Bridge Board of Education happens in 1954. And there's this thing called massive resistance where they refuse to implement Brown Bridge Board of Education. And my mom doesn't, um, she, she graduates college, um, high school in 1979. So if you go back like 12 years, it's like 1960 um, something. And she, she, she did, she's the, she doesn't, she starts first grade and it's integrated in first grade. And she, 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 she starts in first grade and is technically integrated, but they wouldn't teach it because she was the only black kid in the class. And so, and, and, and they have this thing and she tells this story. It doesn't come into the book. She tells a story that there is a girl named, um, Laura. My mom's name is Laurie. There's a white girl named Laura. And, and so she's going through the roles and the white girl's name Laura and my mom's name is Laurie. And so when my mom, they go through the role, get my mom's name. And the white teacher says, no, 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 no. We're not going to call you Lori because I'm not learning a black kid's name. Your name is Laura from now on out. And so she she goes by that name for like eight years until she gets to high school and, or middle school. And the teacher, a black teacher comes and she's reading her name. And she, she corrects the black teacher and says, no, no, my name is Laura. And the black teacher goes, well, no, no, no. It says here that your name is, is Laura. She, I know. But the white teacher told me I had to change my name so that I can make it easy for her. And then the black teacher says to her, no, 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 you have to define who you are for yourself. And so just imagine that you don't even have your name. She, talk, she talks about how um, they did this thing at her high school where nobody, there was this kind of honor society that no black person had ever been allowed in. It's kind of one of these kind of key honor society that helps you get into college. And, then, and even though my mom was a straight A student, they refused to let her into the society because she wasn't a fit. And that even during cafeteria and lunch and all these other things, they'd have like the entire school was integrated and segregated. She tells me this one story of how they they one of the, the popular kids at the at the school play a joke on a black girl. And they go to the one of the like captain of the football team, or whatever, invites the black girl to the dance as a joke. And the girl says yes. And she gets dressed and she thought and the day before the dance, the guy tells that it was a joke. 
And, and, and so like that kind of cruelty was my mom. This isn't like, this is not like some 1930s of the 1970s. I was born in 79. And so I am the first generation in my family of someone who was raised by parents who went to integrated schools. My grandfather went to segregated schools. My, 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 my um, mom's older sisters spent more time in segregated schools. My mom went to integrated schools that was integrated in name only. And they basically functionally refused, half of the teachers refused to teach the black kids. Um, my, my father was passed along and was never taught anything because he was good in basketball. And so this idea that we kind of, and I always ask the people like, and, and maybe this is me rambling. I always ask this question and, and like, it's a real concrete question. And maybe I'll ask you this, Shane, and maybe it's an unfair question, but I'll ask you in what year was it, it, it okay to, oh, I put it, in what year was it inappropriate to be publicly racist? I'm not talking about like passive aggressive dog whistles, but what year? And you could be racist in the 60s, right? You could be racist in the 70s. You could be a segregationist. You know, you could be racist in the 70s. You could be a racist in the 80s when they opposed the MLK holiday. Like, so you're saying that you couldn't be publicly racist in like the 90s. Because what happens now is you, people say, oh, you know, politicians who have black face in high school, in college, go, oh, that was the 90s. What did I know then? Like, in what year? What year, actually, was it appropriate everywhere in America to, to, to not be publicly racist? We're about 10 to 15 years into that. And 10 to 15 years into that, we're already tired of not being publicly racist. And so we're going, wokeness is taking things over. Let's go back <laughs> to being culturally inappropriate. So I, I, I do try to, I, people do say that. They got to go, well, when did the, the events of, the, of this book take place? I'm like, the 90s. <laughs> the 90s and the early 2000s so yeah sorry for rambling on about it but it is true that we have a time warp where we forget American history we forget the context in which we were born into like how many years was slavery legal like how long was Jim Crow and then the relatively short period that we've been out of that and so no, the funny thing about it, and this is, this, this is what I want people to understand, and I'm not trying to be mean to anybody's grandma or great-granddad or whatever, but like, I remember they had this thing that happened on television where there was a picture of Jerry Jones, um, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who was there when they were protesting the integration of, oh, of, yeah. of Little Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, I these remember people... That, yeah. And I was like, and I'm not, I'm not speaking about what Jerry Jones is, and I'm not speaking about like Jerry Jones as a person. I'm saying that these people who were there vehemently opposing um, integration aren't dead. They're like 60 or 70, right? Or 80. And then and here's the thing, and, and, this, and this is what I'm trying to explain. These people ra were raising children at that time. So if, 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 my, if my mom, right, was at a school where they didn't want the black kids around, what do you think was happening in the houses of those children by the parents who opposed integration? So the question you might want to ask yourself is, at what generation were kids raised in homes where the parents explicitly taught anti-racist ideas? If, if you got to say the majority of, like, Robert Board of, Board of Education passes in 1954, the majority of the United States opposes this. 
The majority of the South refused to implement it through the 1960s until there's a second court order requiring integration. So you're saying if you're born in 1965 and you're living in the South, odds are your parents opposed integration. So like that's who's it's like, and this is not a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying that you can't overcome these things. I'm saying that we're not in a we're not two or three generations away from real racist bias. We're you know we're one generation at most where the consensus of the culture, where a parent is born into, we should raise our children in this way. And so I think that we do have to consider the long tail of racism in America without making a claim that every, I'm not saying every single person is racist if you were born before this day. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the legacy of racism is something that's not as easy for us to escape as we, we might like. And it might require continued intentionality and focus. The thing that I say all of the time is racism is the only sin that we believe that we can eliminate. Because if you ask like most Christians, you're going to say, oh, we all know that like stealing is wrong and that lust is wrong, but there's still adultery, right? There's still theft. There's still greed. And so although we all know that greed is bad, you have to constantly be aware of the ways which greed could affect members of your congregation. And I say the same thing. We all know that racism is bad. Most Christians acknowledge that. But in the same way that greed can rise up in any human heart or lust can rise up in any human heart, racism can rise up in any human heart. So there's a diligence that's required to keep that monster at bay. And that's something that I was trying to get across in some of the portions of the narrative. That's really good. Well, and I think also after, aside from the overt expressions of racism, most of us still are going to churches that are segregated, are are going to schools that are segregated, live in neighborhoods that are segregated. Um, you know, it's it's often when we say that we're not racist, we're talking about a feeling we have, not anything that's really embodied in the way that we're living our lives. Yeah, I, th- I think that what what it is hard for us to imagine is that our you know there 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 is a a um a passage in the Psalms that said Lord cleanse me of my secret faults. Um, and there's a passage where Paul says, "I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't mean that I'm thereby presumed innocent." It's like God is going to decide. So there's the possibility. In other words, we really believe that we have a a competence to self accept self accept. Um, assess in all areas and it's sometimes true that we're blind to our own our own issues and the ability to listen and to learn and to discover yourself one of the things about being uh, um, not being a Christian is that it's great because you don't know how messed up you are and the more you you encounter God and the more you read his word the more you begin to get a clear vision who Jesus is you go, man, I messed up. <laughs> so the pursuit of holiness reveals like our lack of holiness. And I think that there is this idea that racism is such an unforgivable sin that I can't acknowledge the possibility that I might have some racial biases that I want to occur because the guilt feels so high. And what I want to say is 
No, no, no. We can acknowledge these things and still be forgiven. One of the wonderful things about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is that it tells the truth. Like David was doing A, B, and C. Abraham was doing this. And so it, it shows you human frailty, not to normalize it, but to say that you can both acknowledge human sinfulness and trust the grace of God to overcome it and bring us to where we want to go. And I think there's this tendency in America that if we tell the full true story and bring all of the things out of the closet and tell those stories over and over and over again, there is no future. But if it's the same way that the Old Testament gives way to the new, it's that deep confession across the Old Testament narrative that reveals our, our need for the Messiah. And so we can we can we can show we can show all of the broken things that happen and trust that God can redeem it. Not that he washes away all of those things that, that, that there are no consequences, but that there's a future after confession. And what I was trying to do in how far the promised land was be as honest as I knew how to be, both about the United States and my own personal issues. Trusting that like that honesty would give people permission to be honest with themselves. No, I think that's powerful because, and I think that that has real implication for our everyday lives. Because for instance, if someone comes to me and says, hey, that thing you said was hurtful or problematic, I don't have to automatically go into defensive mode. I can say that's a possibility. And I can I can ask God to examine that, right? And I can ask my friends with me to examine that. Yeah, I th- because I there think, can I be redemption, right? There can be forgiveness. I think the hardest thing for us to admit is that we're we have not yet become the person who we thought we were going to become. There are ways in which we're not all that we could be. There is this moment um, in How Far to the Promised Land, and I don't want to. I try not to give away too many of the plot points, but I talked about how one of the things that you learn in college, especially the college that I went to, is this ability to articulate all the problems of the world. That you can understand, you can describe racism and injustice and the socioeconomic, the long, the long tail of racism and economic exploitation. I can tell all of those stories. And I, but what I needed was not simply something that gave me a, a tool to critique other people, but something they would get at the critique that I needed to hear about myself. That the problem was not simply external to me, the problem was internal. And one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is that the, the gospel, Christianity, gives me both the external and the internal critique. That it doesn't simply um, point out the enemy, but it also says that you are both... In the Bible, I think we're all portrayed as both victims and victimizers. And I had to be honest that my narrative was not simply a series of things done to me. There were things that were done that I did to others. And, and, and that balance is, I think, what was the hopeful critique of Christianity. You are not all that you are not the same. You are not the hero of this story, but you can point to someone is. And if you're not the hero of the story, and this is the important point, and if America is not the hero of the human history, then we can be we can acknowledge where we're broken. And that's the hardest thing. Like As a parent, like, you know, you live long enough to, like, assess your parents. You can say, I love mom and I love dad. But here are the ways in which what they did impacted me. And I realize now as I am parenting, 
one day these kids are going to reach adulthood and assess how I did. Right? They're going to say, how did like that? And what they're going to say, no matter who you are, if you have kids and you're listening to this, no matter how amazing you think you are, they're going to say, hopefully, I love mom and dad, but here's the ways in which they were inadequate. And that's heartbreaking that I can't be the hero of their story. But what I did decide that I could do was I can't be the pillar of uh, 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 fire by night and the cloud by day, but I can point them to the true pillar of fire and the cloud. And that that's the freedom that I'm trying to give to people. Like, you don't know the way to the promised land. It's funny, I, it, 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 the, the, this is where uh, you probably should never give people alternative titles to uh, the book, but instead of how far to the promised land, what I was struggling, the last two titles was which way to the promised land. Because, like, how do you get there is is the question we're always asking. And I think ultimately we get there with God. Well, I just felt even in even when some of the people in your book had not reached the conclusion of their narrative arc, I just felt tremendous empathy for all of everyone involved because you just knew that these the people who were acting out, they were acting out because of trauma that they had experienced. They were trying to, they were trying to get something that they just couldn't quite grasp at. And it is, I just think you did a beautiful job of, of presenting these people as people and they're not tropes and they're not stereotypes and they're not statistics. Like they're these people with stories, you know? That's one of the things that I wanted to do was to show that the people who you stereotype were people who I loved. And so, um, and it's it, it's really weird because, and it's probably weird to interview me because I am very bad at staying focused on one genre. So if you liked, I, and I didn't know if people were going to travel with me. You know, I wrote how I, I wrote Reading My Black, then I wrote a children's book, and then I wrote like How Far, the, Far to the Promised Land, and that, and 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 and, and, I, and even before that, I wrote a more technical book. Uh, my my dissertation called Sharing in the Sun's Inheritance, and I wrote a little book about Lent. And for each project, I'm asking myself, what form of writing helps me convey what I feel like God is having me giving me to say to people? And this book is a narrative that has almost no Bible in it at all. There's like the the text, and so there isn't like this this exegesis of Scripture. And so I was afraid that people were going to say to me, what, what is a Bible professor doing writing a memoir at the age of 43? So if you can say, Shane, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ruin it, then that makes me feel pretty good. <laughs> no, you didn't ruin it at all. It was so beautiful. And the, the other thing, the last thing I'll say about it, the way that I, I, I love that the way that you showed there's this idea, there's this idea with white liberalism of like, you know, if we can make these structural changes, we can help we can help the poor black folks. There's also a narrative in evangelicalism that says like we need to bring God to these people. And I think something that came forth in your book was that the the black communities got God just fine. Like yeah. <laughs> they don't need anybody from the outside to bring it in, you yeah. know, like yeah. God's active and at work in the places that white people are not at, believe it or not. But I, I, I think that 
I always, I always call us like African Americans are weapons or, or sometimes pawns in someone else's game. And that's the perception of who we are. But we actually are characters of agency. And I don't think that we are closed off from the community of the church. What I mean by that is that as a part of the body of Christ, we, we care for one another. Black, white, Asian, Latino, First Nations, indigenous peoples. But we have to come together as partners and, and as brothers and sisters, not as overlords and, and minions. And so I was not saying we don't want to be a part of the beloved community. What I do, what I did want to say is there's a distinctively black narrative in which God is at work amongst his people. And because it is the same God who is at work, that black story touches on the human story. And so I do hope that someone who is completely alien to the experiences in this book aren't just challenged by it and this idea that I need to be like 20% less racist or something, but that they are asking, where's the hand of providence in my life? I had no idea about what happened. Like I had never been to Oxford when I read Surprised by Joy. And I didn't know what see like I don't know that I didn't know the emotional but there was something in that narrative that was deeply human. And because of that humanity and what God was doing through that life, I I could reach it. And I I would pray that people would say the same thing about hop out to the promised land. That there's something human happening here and that they can reach it. And that it's not just a book to help them wrestle with race in America, but it's a book that helped them wrestle with the question of meaning and purpose and what God is up to in the world. Well, I loved in the last, in, in the last uh, chapter where you're talking about you're preaching at your father's funeral and you actually, the, I, I wrote down the quote here. You said, do our loves and losses and decisions matter or are they all just a collection of events that end with our passing? Resurrection infuses our lives with meaning. It suggests that who and what we are echoes into eternity. Yeah, that's powerful. That's, that's that, was, that was that was that um, was. It's it's really it's really um, interesting because that was a paragraph that I wrote for my father's eulogy, and it was written like. 2017 and it became and this is why I talk about that eulogy changed my life writing it changed my life is that that paragraph is what how I see humanity now like the way that I saw my father and that the way that I made sense of his life is the way that I make sense of all human life in light of the resurrection and, and why that life matters and so that paragraph I didn't know what at the time I was writing a book um, one of the things they made me, this is nobody will, these are deep cuts, but in actuality, um, in the full sermon, 
that is preceded. That's pre that part is preceded by a quote from Dostoevsky. They made me cut for 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 space. Is it was from the Inquisitor? If anyone's already read um, uh, the Brothers Karamazov, and like the whole issue is like he's asking this question about whether or not God exists, whether or not any of this stuff matters, and I I took it from there. And then I said, you know, the question Dostoevsky asked is raised for all of us. Does any of this stuff matter? And so I think that the resurrection is true. And therefore, I think that because the resurrection is true, the resurrection runs backwards through Jesus's life, infusing everything he did with meaning. But it also runs backwards through human backwards and forwards through human history, infusing every human life as the the, the supreme drama of human existence. Whether we find God or how we find God in our journey through life is the question, and that's what I, that's what I got at in in the eulogy. And I think, man, that is the beauty of the cross and the resurrection is that infusion of meaning that it gives to everyone, to the stories that we will never hear, to those people that you feel like was it were a wasted life. It, there is no wasted life in the economy of God, and I think that's just. That's such a beautiful thing. No, thank you. You 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 got the theme of the book. Maybe you don't have to. You know, no one has to read it. You know it now. Every life matters. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. no one listened to him. Go out and buy this book. <laughs> oh man. Well, Esau, this has been so good to talk with you. Hey, you mentioned earlier. You know, you're already moving on to a different project. Can you give us any kind of preview or hint to what you're working on these days? Um. Yes, I'm working Maybe on my you can. next book. That's fine. The Bible, Slavery, and Abolition. Is that going to be more academic or? Who knows? Um, it depends. I, can't, it, I feel like if I put this out on the internet, people are going to ask me to come sign a contract for it. I'm still in the early processes of deciding whether or not I'm going to do an academic version or a trade version. Right now, it's leaning towards a return to the academy before they kick me out. So um, <laughs> it may be a university press book, but it may also be um, a trade book. I haven't decided. All right, cool. Well, I'll look, I'll look forward to that one. Uh, Esau, so good. So good, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I had a great, I had a great time having this conversation and I'll come back soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, Go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code Seminary Dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at at beard on a bike that's at beard on a bike also i'm on facebook facebook.com slash shane blackshear one two three and remember that seminary dropout is listener supported you can visit support and press become a patron 
Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right, thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah, my best I owe.